we're often told God loves you. But what does that really mean? That some impersonal force galaxies away may consider you from time to time? Or that you are a single drop in a vast ocean of humanity and God cares for all of it? There are billions of lives, billions of stories. Can we really believe he has great destinies planned for all of them? Surely the ruler of the universe has more important affairs than to notice the needs of one singular individual. But hear this, nothing could be further from the truth. When God says, I love you, it means that he crafted every detail of your being. Your every feature is his perfect design. His mind perceives your worries and your thoughts. His heart is broken by your pain. You are his child, created in his image. Your value exceeds all the riches of earth. Your worth extends beyond the stars. And though you may be unaware, he's carefully constructing the events of your life to build his kingdom. If you are willing, he can and will achieve wonders through your hands. It is the deepest passion, the most meaningful promise. It is your security, your hope, and your future. It is the truth beyond doubt. God loves you. Do we believe that, church? If there is one statement, one phrase, one idea that's shared in church, easy to hear at church, easy to agree with at church, easy to say amen to at church, it would be that, that God loves you. And yet, when the trials come, when the waters and storms rise, when we doubt, when we wander, when we wonder if God has forgotten us, it's in that moment that the reality of what we believe about who God is and how much he loves us is truly revealed, is truly tested. So the good news is the message of Scripture clearly, repeatedly, and emphatically proclaims that God is, that God loves, and God loves you. Here's the good news, church. Ready? If you're taking notes this morning, for those who believe in Jesus Christ, for those who are in Christ, there has never been a moment, not even an instant of your life where you've been unloved. For those of us that believe in Christ, that are in Christ, that know Christ, there's never been a moment, not even an instant of your life where you've been unfathered. You've heard us say this. We believe it to be true, but also today, how beautiful it is to proclaim this simultaneous truth. For those who believe in Christ, friends, your future is always more promising than your past. I get less amens for that. Less. Well, because part of the reason, tragically, is that, you know, sometimes there's Bible teachers that are, I should say, 
teachers, I don't know if they're Bible teachers, there's teachers on TV or other places that will say, yes, be hopeful and be optimistic because God can give you your best life now. What we would say humbly as we submit and teach scripture is that God does have an amazing life. Jesus said at John 10, 10, I've come to give you life and life more abundantly. But the reason that Christians can always hope and believe and trust that we have a future that's better than our present is because not only of God's presence in the present, but how God has saved us through Christ, filled us with his spirit, and promised to bring us safely and finally home. The truth is, tomorrow's promise is always greater than today's pain. Today's message is very, very simple. It's about how when we trust in God, He gives us a home, a future, and a hope. A home, a future, and a hope. And before we see that come alive through the pages of the book of Jeremiah, from the lips of Jeremiah, through the inspiration of God's word through scripture in the Old Testament, let's look at these promises come alive in the new. For example, we wouldn't have to turn to anywhere else to learn about our hope than Ephesians chapter 2. The Bible says, remember that at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel, and foreigners to the covenant of the promise. There was a time, there was a place where we were not close to Christ, without hope, and what does it say? Without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. We were once without hope and without God, and that story, that truth, that reality because of Christ, has forever changed. Amen? Amen. Not only a hope, but also, as we see here in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, a future. I love this verse. If you want to write down this passage so you can revisit it later, it's a wonderful one. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, 16 through 18, God says, Therefore, we do not lose heart. We do not lose heart. Though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us, what does it say? An eternal glory that what? Far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not what is seen, but what is unseen. Since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. Do we believe that? That hope for tomorrow about that future gives us strength and joy in the present. Not only a hope, not only a future, right before Jesus' trial, Jesus' crucifixion, right before he would go to the cross for our sins, he comforts his followers and says he's going to prepare a home for them. John 14 verse 1 says this, Do not let your hearts be troubled. Let me read that again. Jesus says this. Ready? Do not let your hearts be troubled. Do I need to read it again? Sometimes we do, right? We've got to revisit it over again because our hearts get really easily troubled. Jesus says, stop that. Do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. My Father's house 
I love this imagery, has many rooms. If that were not so, would I have not told you that I'm going there to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me that you also may be where I am. Isn't that amazing? The same Jesus who was born, the same word that took on flesh at Christmas, the same Jesus who would die on the cross, the same Jesus who victoriously rose again on the third day, is now, right now, not only sustaining us in this life, but preparing a place, a home for us in the next. How good is this good God? How good is our good Savior? When we turn to Scripture, we see just how much hope God wants to give His people. Whether you are talking about the church in the New Testament, or you're talking about God's people Israel in the Old Testament, when we look at the book of Jeremiah, the prophet Jeremiah, you're going to see a, lit, a letter written by Jeremiah, although inspired by the Lord, to a specific people at a specific time. So that letter was written to God's people as they were in exile, without a home, without any seeming hope, and doubting their future. And yet while that was written to that specific generation, it is the principles, the promise, still very applicable to Christians and churches today. So if we are looking at Jeremiah 29, here's some of the historical context surrounding what is happening in this book at this time. Jeremiah was a prophet whose ministry spanned four of the most tumultuous decades in all of Israel's history. You think you have a hard job? Trust me, you don't want Jeremiah's job. Jeremiah saw an enemy, saw a country, saw a people come in and not only come in and invade, but also come in and destroy. Come in and devastate the temple. I mean, envision this. It's hard for us to relate to this, understand this. So think of it this way. A foreign enemy comes in, attacks our shores. They invade our country. They attack our capital. They burn our Washington Monument to the ground. They expel and take captive our president. And there is a dictator sitting in the Oval Office in the White House. What would be the reaction? We've never had to deal with that before. We would think the sky is falling because, in fact, it was. But not only that, this is not just a nationalistic tragedy for us. God's people saw themselves as a nation brought into existence by God, the descendants of Abraham. So they're wondering, God, where are you? They're doubting his presence. They're doubting his power because the unthinkable has happened. They lost their home. They lost their capital. They lost their temple. So Jeremiah's role is to share God's word before and after this invasion happens. Jeremiah received his call to be a prophet in the 13th year of the reign of King Josiah, which was around 627 B.C., until the 11th year of the King Zedekiah, which is around 586 B.C. Jeremiah continued his ministry until after the siege and capture of Jerusalem 
by the Babylonians in 586 BC. Can you envision this? Not only what would it be like for a foreign enemy to come in and take our capital, but then a mass deportation. People sitting next to you right now, taking captive, taking across a huge plot of land, different, distinct country, hostile territory. You're ripped from your home, your securities, your identities, your family. What would we be thinking? What would we be feeling? Well, here, the story picks up in Jeremiah 29, verse 1. We're going to read verse 1 and then jump to verse 4. All eyes on Scripture. This is the word of the Lord. Jeremiah 29, verse 1 says this. These are the words of the letter that Jeremiah the prophet sent from Jerusalem to the surviving elders of the exiles. Now notice that word exiles, because you're going to hear that word over and over again. To the elders of the exiles, to the priests, the prophets, and all the people, amen, whom Nebuchadnezzar had taken into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. That's the historical context. That's the historical setting. This is a letter written to exiles, people who are no longer in Jerusalem, in Israel, but now are in foreign, hostile territory. Let's jump to verse 4. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom, now listen, I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Here's the instruction. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Note this, underline this. Multiply there, the Lord says, and do not decrease. Verse 7. But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare, meaning it's good, in its prospering, you yourself will find welfare. Verse 8, Therefore, for thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, do not let your prophets and your diviners who are among you deceive you, and do not listen to the dreams that they dream. For it is a lie they are prophesying to you in my name. I did not send them, declares the Lord. Jeremiah is about to give a powerful word of an instruction and hope that God has not forsaken them, God has not forgotten them, and God has a plan for them. But let us teach the Bible as it should be taught and as it clearly communicates whose will was it that Israel would be in Babylon? Whose will was it that the capital would be overthrown? Whose will was it that Nebuchadnezzar would come in and invade God's people and the promised land? Was it only the will of Nebuchadnezzar in Babylon? No, it was God's will, as you saw even in that text. Why? It was God's will because of Israel's won't. For years and decades, generations and centuries, God had continually sent prophets, spoken His word, blessed and protected and provided. Over and over again, God said, I want to bless you, multiply you. I will protect you. 
covenant with you, and I will always be with you. But you must obey, you must believe, you must surrender your counterfeit saviors and your false gods, your idols. Over and over, God says, I will, I will, I will, I will. And Israel had said for generations, we won't. I won't. Me and my household, we won't. So God allows them to be attacked. It's his will. But even as he is disciplining them, he still has a plan for them, even in this foreign, hostile land of Babylon. He has a plan to use them, and that's why he gives the instructions for these Israelites to build a home there, to grow there, to multiply there, to plant gardens, and to have a harvest there. Now, why does Jeremiah warn against the false prophets, the false teachers, the diviners? Because here was the message before the siege. The message before the siege by the false teachers and the false prophets was there was never going to be a siege. You can continue to deny, to rebel against God. You can continue to worship false gods and counterfeit saviors. But in the end, God's never going to judge you. God's never going to discipline you. You keep doing what you want, and God's just going to give you whatever you want, however you want, and whenever you want. That was the false prophet's message beforehand. And now, what is the false teacher's message now that the siege has happened? Envision this, friends. Envision you're in their position. What would your hope and prayer be? That God would deliver us instantly. That, man, we just got ripped from our homes. We're now in Babylon, and you have these prophets and false teachers saying, hey, listen, guys, don't even unpack your suitcases. God's coming. So yeah, we had to make this trip, but we're going back real soon. Jeremiah is about to say, no, it's going to be 70 years. 70 years. And what's amazing, you can read about that in the book of Daniel. God, sure enough, does it. He brings a remnant back after 70 years, an amazing fulfillment of prophecy and promises. But here's the thing. You have men and women that are probably in their 40s and 50s and 60s, they start doing the math, and they realize, oh my goodness, Babylon is now my permanent place of residence. Babylon is where I am going to be called upon by God, listen to this, listen, to not only build a life, listen, not only multiply, but to pray for the good of these Babylonians? Oh, mercy me. To pray for the good of this city, to pray for the good of its inhabitants, to pray for the good of its evil dictator that just laid waste to our capital and our temple? What would our reaction be, Christians? Uh, no thank you. So that's why it's so tempting to hear these false prophets, right? Hey, friends, why is deception deceiving? There's a reason why. Deception is deceiving because we want to believe it. Because there's a little bit of truth in there. It's a little bit of truthiness. Yes, God will deliver his people, but not in the way, not in the time, and not in the fashion that they had hoped. Not only why is deception deceiving, but why is temptation tempting? Have you ever noticed you're not revulsed by what tempts you? There's a reason we keep going back to it. 
No, in the same way, deception is deceiving because we want to believe in it. Temptation is tempting because we want to partake of it. This was a false message. It wasn't true. We're where we are for a reason. We're serving. We're living. We're raising a family where we are for a reason. As we apply these principles to the church and to our current situation, Lord, have mercy. We pray for the Lord's return. Maranatha, come, Lord Jesus. But while we wait, either for him to return or for us to return to him, we have a role. We have a job. And we love the land that we live in. But this is not heaven. This is not our perfect, final, eternal home. So even as exiles now, how is God calling us to grow, to build, to multiply, to plant roots so that we could be salt and light even while we wait expectantly for him. So here's the promise, verse 10. I love this promise. If you don't know this verse, this is a great one to memorize, a great one to um, perhaps keep close to your heart, post around your home, embed it deep in your soul. Verse 10. For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon... Notice now all the I wills. Take note of the I wills. Underline the I wills. I will visit you. I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. Verse 11. Here's the verse. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for welfare, meaning good, to prosper. Plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Verse 12, it continues, then, I will, then you will call upon me and come and pray to me, and I will hear you. Verse 13, you will seek me and find me when you seek me. What does it say, church? With all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord. Note the I wills. I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I have driven you, declares the Lord. And I will bring you back from the place which I sent you into exile. How many of us know this? The cause of every good work begins with God's good will. He says here, notice, with your eyes back on Scripture, God says, I will visit you. I will fulfill my promise to you. I will hear you. That is such amazing good news. He says, I will be found by you. I will restore your fortunes. I will bring you back to this place. I will bring you home. But once again, here is that perennial challenge for God's people. It's not that he says that all the while they continue to rebel, deny his holy name. No, he says, I will when you seek me. What? With all your heart. Now, here's the good news. Here's the gospel truth. God works not because of us, oftentimes in spite of us. That while we were still sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. There is nothing that can thwart the sovereign plans of our good Father. Yet this truth remains the same. This truth remains the same. If you're taking notes, here's the big idea. All of God's I wills are only experienced when we surrender our will. God's I wills are only experienced when we surrender our will. 
And that's why any invitation to believe is an invitation to turn. Believing means turning from sin, self, and returning to our Father and Savior. Trusting means following. Salvation is experienced through what? Surrendering, giving your heart, laying down your life, allowing the defenses, the pretenses, the excuses to all fade and fall away. Friends, let's not be confused here. There is no revival without repentance. So that's why even in Babylon, these Israelites will struggle. Even while in exile, even as their whole world comes crashing down, some of them will still say, you can't have all of me. You can't have my heart. So think of it this way. Some of us that are more mathematically minded, this is a mathematical and spiritual equation. Anytime we add Christ to our lives, there should be a subtraction of sin. Now, we don't want to just add Christ to our lives, right? We want to exalt Christ as Lord of our lives. Uh, some of us used to have that bumper sticker that said, God is my co-pilot. And I apologize if you still have it on your car right now. <laughs> Love you very much. But if God's your co-pilot, listen, you need to get out of the pilot seat altogether. No, we don't add Christ to our life. But anytime we add Christ, it does lead to a subtraction of sin. When we change our beliefs, think of it as an equal equation. Changing our beliefs always equals a change of behavior. Change of worship always equals a surrender of our wills. So what's that one thing in our hearts? Here's the truth. The one thing we are most reluctant, the one thing we are most reluctant to give up is the one thing that has the most potential to become a substitute for God. The one thing that we are most, most reluctant to give up is the one thing that has the greatest potential to replace and be a substitute in our hearts, in our lives, for God. When we are called to follow Jesus, and by the way, following Jesus means what? Jesus is in front of us, right? We're not saying, all right, Jesus, here are my plans, catch up. Try to keep up, Jesus. Try to keep up with me because I got all the... Listen, I don't have time for this prayer thing. I do not have time for the patience and the waiting. 70 years? No, give me somebody else that's going to tell me best life now. Okay. What we want is to follow Jesus. Now, I want you to think about this. As we follow Jesus who's in front of us, what leads our heads to turn behind us? Whatever that thing is, that has the most potential to replace Jesus. And it will lead to us following that thing as opposed to Jesus. It will lead to us trying to control our worlds, trying to put all of our uh, trials, problems on our back. Has anyone ever been to New York City, specifically Fifth Avenue? If you ever go to the RCA building, right there in the foyer of the RCA building is the classic depiction of Atlas, the mythological deity. And Atlas, with all of his strength and all of his muscles, he has what on his back? the whole world on his back and he's straining and he's flexing and he's using every ounce of his strength to carry his world on his back. You know what's interesting? When you walk down Fifth Avenue, same street, same city, and you step into St. Patrick's Cathedral, there's a picture of Jesus as a young boy, a depiction of Jesus as a young boy who is effortlessly holding the whole world in his hand. Same city, same street, different message. 
Here's the truth, friends. If you're taking notes, this is a very, very important truth. You ready? Maybe offensive, but it's really good news. We all make really bad gods. Stop it. Stop trying to be God. Stop trying to control everything. Stop trying to be Atlas and carry the whole world on your back. You can't do it. Never could, never will. All the while, Jesus, he holds this world, your world, every world, all the universe in his hands. No, not only do we make really bad gods, but here's also the truth. Christianity makes a really bad hobby. When Jeremiah says, when the Lord speaks to the prophet Jeremiah, seek me with all your heart, this is not meant to be a hobby. Like this isn't just one of the many things that we do. It's meant to be all of you. It's just what it is. It's just what it is. Your heart, your passion, your gifts, your time, your talent, your treasure. So what's the choice? The choice is simply this. The choice is to surrender. Everyone eventually surrenders to someone or something. If not to God, we will surrender to the opinions and expectations of others. We will surrender to money, to resentment, to fear, to our pride, our lust, our egos. We will surrender to something, but we are designed by God to know God and to gladly willingly, beautifully, and humbly surrender to his grace. We were designed to worship God. If we fail to worship him, we will worship other created things, follow them, and give our hearts to them. So the truth, the the option, the choice is clear. Listen, friends, we are free to choose what we surrender our hearts to, but we are not free from the consequences of that choice. Would you choose Jesus today? He has a future, a hope, and a plan for you. And it's better than any story you could have written on your own. It leads to life in this life and life everlasting in the next. Deuteronomy puts it perfectly like this, and this is our invitation. This is our close. Deuteronomy chapter 30. This day I call the heavens and the earth as witnesses against you that I have set before you life and death, blessings and curses, Now choose life so that you and your children may live, that you may love the Lord your God, listen to his voice, hold fast to him, for the Lord is your life. And he will give you many years in the land he swore to give your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Amen? Let's pray, church. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your grace. We thank you that when we say God loves you, oh my goodness, we're just beginning to understand how true that beautiful truth is. So I pray, Father, that we would lay down our defenses, stop and halt with our excuses, that we wouldn't be like Atlas carrying the world on our back, but we would gladly give our hearts and our world, past, our present, our futures and forevers to Jesus Christ, who not only loves us, Jesus Christ, who died for us, Jesus Christ, who rose again. So anyone and everyone that believes in him might have a future, 
might have a hope and always has a home. If that's you this morning, then we pray that you would surrender, open up your heart, trust in Christ, and turn from yourself and turn from sin. Would you do that now? He's good. Friend, He's good. Believe today. Receive this gift through grace. He's good. And He loves you. Pray this simple prayer with me, would you please? Heavenly Father, I want to know today that you're real. Father, I want to know that you, that you love me. But I am a sinner, stubborn, empty, and lost. Jesus Christ, please forgive me of my sin. Would you pray that to him? Let today be the day you choose life. Jesus, please fill me with your spirit and grant me the strength to follow you. We pray this in Christ's good name. Amen.